when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello, and welcome to the FT's U.S. Election Countdown podcast. I'm Courtney Weaver, the FT's U.S. politics correspondent, and here with me in Washington is Sean Donnan. Hi. Hi, good to see you, Sean. Great to be here. We have less than two weeks to go until Election Day. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have been crisscrossing each other in Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, and other pivotal swing states, as polls show Clinton in the lead. This week, we're going to talk about both candidates' final push and also what's in store beyond Election Day, something we're just starting to get early glimpses of. And that's one of the fascinating things here in Washington, really. It's that there is this kind of assumption that's setting in that Hillary Clinton is is going to win this thing. And that means that people are already starting to talk beyond uh, the election, beyond November 8th, and what that might mean for both parties. But I think we should really start talking about these final two weeks. We're not past the election yet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It would be a shame after all this time just to jump ahead and miss the actual Absolutely. Vote. But it's clear that the conversation has shifted here. So let's let's start talking about Clinton. I mean, she's obviously has a clear lead right now, but we haven't actually seen that much to her compared to Donald Trump. Um, you know, Trump is having three, three, four, five campaign events today, where Clinton, I think, has a much more moderated schedule. Do you think this is a deliberate move on her campaign's part? I think it's clear that that her campaign has been much more strategic in where it's going, who it's talking to, uh, than he is. I mean, that's the, the been one of the fascinating things that sometimes the Trump campaign, while it's looked hyperactive, it's also looked slightly kind of scattergunned. Uh, this week they sent off Mike Pence to Utah, which is a state that they should be dominating. Uh, strangely, Donald Trump was here in Washington opening his hotel with just 13 days left in the campaign pain when probably he should be at a place like Ohio or Florida or any of the other battleground states. So that, I mean, there's this kind of weird, uh, definitely a weird contrast between the two campaigns, one that looks kind of like clinical, planned, very strategic, and the other that looks slightly crazy. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think one thing that is striking is you see Trump giving events with the same groups that are already in his pocket. So, you know, giving events aimed at evangelicals, which is a group that probably is already going to vote for him and not concentrating on women, for instance, you know, in areas like Philadelphia, the Philadelphia suburbs. So I think this goes back to your point about, you know, Clinton's campaign is, is a machine. They've been preparing for this for a long, long time, and they're very methodical about it. Um, and that's one of the reasons they've done so well, I think, this campaign, you know, is that they have the infrastructure. They have this huge team of people um, who are really looking at the data. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons they've excelled. And one of the things that you've seen in a lot of her recent campaign events is that they've been focused on the kind of opening days of early voting. And that's something that's really important in this race. So in North Carolina, there's uh, new stats out showing almost a fifth of the expected voters have voted already, and that the Democrats seem to have an advantage in that. And that is down to ground game. It's down to a kind of long slug fest that the <laughs> Democrats have been having. So yeah, I, I, this is this is you know really where the big 
big planned campaigns uh, show and where Donald Trump, there was always a question about whether or not he'd be able to pull it off. At the same time, you know, and and there is this interesting um, consensus building about Hillary Clinton really being the front runner here. People saying that the polling average that she has now is is historically insurmountable for Donald Trump. No one has done what he would have to do <laughs> to, to 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 win this election, and it, and it does make you wonder, especially uh, as someone who works for a British publication, whether <laughs> we might be setting ourselves up for some kind of uh, Brexit surprise or something like that. And that's something that Donald Trump is. I mean, interestingly, on the on, on the stump, right? He's exactly. saying this is going to be bigger than Brexit. Yeah, he says he likes Brexit plus. You know, other variations. I mean, he's very aware of the Brexit scenario. Uh, and I think he's looking at that now as his Hail Mary, you know, to winning the race. Um, he's a guy who's has pinned his whole career on winning. Uh, you know, he, you know, from the very beginning, he was saying, you know, America, you, you know, you've been losing for so long with me, you'll never lose again, you're going to get so tired of winning. So what happens when this guy when this campaigner actually loses the race? I mean, I think that'll be tough for both him and his supporters. It'll be really good for uh, publishers, because we're going to see reams of books published <laughs> on the psychology of Donald Trump after this, I think. Uh, and, you know, and this is a guy who's out there who loves the limelight, loves winning, as you say. Uh, and it looks like he's setting up uh, for a loss now. And what's interesting is you've started to see it a little bit in his body language. Now you've you've seen him up close. Yeah, I mean it's been interesting. I've gone to a lot of Donald Trump rallies over the past year and a lot in the past few weeks. Um, and it's not all rallies, but there are definitely some. I was at a rally outside Asheville um, on Friday. And he kept on repeating the phrase, if I lose, if I lose, which is a very non-Trumpian phrase to use. And then again, you know, at this Trump Hotel opening here in D.C., he was very subdued and seemed kind of down on the stage, um, low energy, I'd even say. Uh, And you have to think that, you know, this realization of what the poll numbers are showing is setting in. And even though, you know, he's vowing to fight till the end and to win it and that the polls are wrong, uh, he's really struggling at times to make that argument to his supporters. And I think there's also there's there there is a point about the Trump brand here. And this is kind of a you know we're a business publication. There is a big business story here, which is this is a a, a big global brand that is weighted into politics, uh, which is something that normally big brands try and avoid doing. And in fact, his kids told him not to do <laughs> right. uh, at at the very beginning because they were worried about exactly this, the type of damage that you're seeing. Right. And you know we're starting to see signs that maybe his business is taking a hit from this. Right. I mean, it's interesting. You have kind of two sides of this coin. So on the one hand, the brand and the campaign have become so intertwined. I think over the course of the campaign, you've had something like more than 30 Trump events have been held at Trump properties across the country and outside the country in Scotland. Um, And you've had millions of dollars spent by the Trump campaign on Trump holding events at Trump properties, on Trump planes. Uh, But on the other hand, you're really seeing the Trump brand like you said, take a hit from this. So so one example is they're starting this new hotel brand called Scion, um, and they're not naming it Trump. You know, they've decided basically Which that... Which is the first time in the history of the Trump, The first time right? in history. I mean, the whole, the whole brand has been paced, based on this one guy and this one guy's name, and here they have this new hotel brand that's not going to bear his name for the first time. And and the way that the organization explains it is they say this is in honor of the children, right? Right. The Scion. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. This is a huge point. We're also seeing reports of apartment buildings in New York that exactly. are named after Trump, where the tenants are insisting on removing the the marquee. They're giving new uniforms to the doorman that don't have his name on it. I mean, this is a really uh, significant hit to business. And it could, you know, 
could very well be that we see not just the books about the man, but also the kind of Harvard Business School studies about yeah. the brand and yeah. politics and the dangers of politics. Yeah, exactly. I think also, you know, you've had businessmen obviously run for office before, but rarely has there been a case where a campaign has been so predicated on one man's business experience and on his company, you know, and at this point, it just, it seems hard to, you know, differentiate or, the campaign Or, or someone the whose personal life was so intertwined with his business. I mean, if you remember <laughs> yeah. the story about his taxes and the billion dollars in losses that he booked in his personal taxes that were actually, you know, business losses, right, effectively. Right. So, yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. I think, I mean, the other really fascinating thing to me here is when you look at both parties, right? right? So the, the, the Republican Party and what happens after Donald Trump. And everyone's talking about Paul Ryan nowadays. Yeah, Paul Ryan, your favorite. <laughs> Paul Ryan, I, for a long time, I've thought he's one of the most interesting people in Washington. And the reason I've thought that is that he is someone from the time that he became speaker uh, early this year has, has been trying really to focus on policy uh, and lay out this kind of old-fashioned policy agenda. And it's really wonky stuff <laughs> uh, that is completely at odds with uh, the normal acrimonious poli uh, politics that you see in Washington. And I think part of that is something that was uh, uh, kind of a story pre-Trump and, and probably will be one post-Trump, which is a story of uh, how does the Republican Party appeal to the center uh, in American politics mm -hmm. again? Right. I mean, it just it's so hard if you think about the past six months. Almost, you know, every press conference Ryan has had, the first question is always about Trump, you know, and it's what do you think of the latest thing Trump has said? What do you think of the latest Trump controversy? I mean, does his political career survive Trump? Is he able to kind of divorce himself from the fact that he endorsed Trump, you know, even when, you know, Trump had said some pretty controversial things? So that, that's a level outside the party. But within the party, he also has this this kind of rebellion, the House Freedom Caucus, which is this group of 40 uh, ultra-conservative uh, members of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives uh, who are actually starting to kind of call for his head, saying you haven't done enough to support Donald Trump right. uh, in this campaign, and that has hurt our candidate and has hurt our party. So it, there's no doubt that November 9th, the day after the election, there's going to be a big uh, debate and quite possibly a civil war starting in the Republican Party. But it's not the only one, right? On the Democratic side, there's there's all sorts of other signs that things aren't going to be so easy either. Everyone is preparing basically for a Clinton White House and trying to see what position they can get in there. You know, you obviously have Bernie Sanders, who is Clinton's opponent in the primary, trying to have the most progressive uh, platform of any Democratic presidential nominee ever. And then you have, their, you know, one of her best surrogates this campaign has been Elizabeth Warren, who has really taken Donald Trump uh, uh, head on and uh, been really blunt in her criticism of him, uh, as he has been of her. But the uh, but the really interesting thing is, and we've learned this through some of the WikiLeaks emails that have come yes. out of John Podesta's emails, that the people around her have been pushing very hard for her endorsement to carry some... Uh, uh, for almost there to be a quid pro quo that that you're not going to see the same Wall Street friendly appointees that you have seen in past Democratic administrations, and this goes back really to the cult of Robert Rubin. And in the early 1990s, and Bill Clinton, uh, he was Bill Clinton's Treasury Secretary. And if you look back through through Democratic administrations since, um, they on the economic side in particular, there's always been a heavy pres presence of Rubenites, and Elizabeth Warren does not like Rubenites. No. 
no, she does not. But there is this interesting tension you see in the emails of kind of what Hillary Clinton and what her campaign wants their relationship to Wall Street to be. You know, you have some emails trying to distance themselves, some emails kind of indicating that they understand Wall Street's concerns and and will be open to them under a Clinton administration. And I I think one thing interesting to point out is that these WikiLeaks emails, the John Podesta emails, if it was any other campaign, this would be, you know, number one headline every day. Fatal blow. Not Not this time. time. (laughs) And you know what's amazing, actually, is 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 we we've gotten this far into a conversation, and we haven't once talked about the sex tapes <laughs> uh, and, and Donald Trump. Thank God and, for that. And, and, and that's a, you know, which is interesting in terms of of the conversation having moved on, really, in Washington. And that's you know, that's not a reflection of of either of us having forgotten a moment. It's more a reflection of what the conversation here is here in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you know, really. The other thing that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party uh, are going to have to think long and hard about is two important constituencies that they potentially have lost uh, in this election. And on the Republican side, it is women and particularly college educated Mm -hmm. white women. Uh, And that's it's worth remembering that is a population that they have owned uh, since 1950s. uh, You go back more than half a century, uh, though Republicans have always done well with white college educated men and women. And on on the Democratic side, it's blue-collar voters who really Donald Trump has has appealed to and are incredibly important to to the labor base that is so important to the Democratic Party. So there's, you know, big foundational kind of existential crises on both sides. Some of these shifts we were expecting maybe before this election, we kind of saw hints of this, but I think you wouldn't have seen it in such a dramatic way if we had had two different candidates. That's that's true. At the same time, you know, the, these are also reflections of long-term demographic shifts. So increasingly, and we've seen this through the last few elections, the Democratic Party has become the party of the educated, of white-collar workers, mm-hmm. more so than blue-collar workers. And if you go back to Reagan and even before that, uh, clearly Republicans have done a good job of, of courting the blue-collar vote, and it's been key to, to their past victories. The question this year is, and, and I think what seems to be the, the kind of lesson of this year is that uh, you got to be careful about who you pick and how you court those people because uh, you can't get elected only uh, on the back of blue-collar or white blue-collar votes in America. You need to build a broader coalition. Yeah, I think that's a good lesson. So let's leave it there. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at at Courtney underscore FT. I'm at S. Donnan. And remember to sign up for our daily campaign trail newsletter called White House Countdown. Uh, You can sign up at ft.com forward slash NBE. That stands for News by Email. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 